and welcome back to this edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute, and we have a really interesting show for you today. Uh, I'm joined by Greg Dillon. He is a former Brantford police officer and FBI agent and the author of The Thin Blue Lie, An Honest Cop Versus the FBI. It's a book. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's a gripping whistleblower account of FBI corruption and malfeasance. And so we are delighted to welcome Greg Dillon, veteran state investigator and former FBI agent. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think the most interesting way to talk through all of this is just to take it from the very beginning. You were a Brantford cop. Yes, I was, yep. So you were hired after graduating from the University of New Haven in 1978, and you were working weekends until you were hired as a full-time officer in 1981? Yes, that's correct, 81, yep. Let's just take it step-by-step until you ended up being a whistleblower and revealing FBI misconduct years later. You went to the FBI— And you were assigned to the Criminal Reactive Squad in Virginia, and then you were a member of the Violent Crime Squad in Washington, correct? Yes. Yep. All right. Then in 1990, you came back to Connecticut, and you were hired as an inspector for the Connecticut Office of the Chief State's Attorney in 1990, and you were assigned to an FBI fugitive task force. The Chief State's Attorney is sort of like the attorney general for criminal behavior. Exactly. Okay. And they handle the criminal side of the house. The attorney general in Connecticut handles the civil side. In other states, it's all under one office. In Connecticut, it's bifurcated. Right. And so that's when you were assigned to this FBI fugitive task force. And is that when you started to see corruption and trouble? Not initially. Okay. um, But there is this unusual process where the FBI... In order to justify their involvement in state cases, they apply for what is called an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution warrant. So that's in addition to the original state charge that the, that the, the person is wanted for. So I, I'm just going to throw in here for benefit of some of our, our listeners. Sure. Um, because, you know, usually if it's a state crime – the FBI wouldn't be involved because the FBI is a federal agency and it usually handles federal crimes, whereas the chief state's attorney handles state crimes. So if you just get murdered in Connecticut, it's a state crime, no federal involvement unless somebody goes across state lines or there's a federal drug charge involved. Am I correct, Greg? You are correct, yes. Okay, so now go ahead. So every investigator assigned to the Fugitive Task Force has their own caseload. And what would happen is if there was indication that the person had left the state of Connecticut in order to avoid capture, they would refer to that as an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, and that's a UFAP. Uh, That's the federal charge that allows them to become involved. So the investigator would prepare a draft of a federal warrant, and that would be handed to the coordinator of the FBI task force, who would then give it or assign it to an FBI agent who would incorporate that into their arrest warrant and apply for it at the uh, federal court. So this would allow them now to become officially involved in the investigation. What happened was 
some of the probable cause um, was sometimes lacking or insufficient in the eyes of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they might reject a uh, federal uh, UFAP warrant. And you need probable cause in order to get a warrant under the law. You do. Um, what happened was there was a outburst from the uh, agent in charge of the uh, task force that uh, when uh, a couple of these warrants were returned for insufficient probable cause, uh, he came right out and said, um, this is bullshit. Give it to me. I'll write it up so they have to sign it. They never prosecute these warrants anyway. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that put me on notice. That was a, that was a big red flag and uh, it concerned me. I, I never thought I'd hear an FBI agent say something like that, in front, especially in front of colleagues. Um, so uh, I, I started to scrutinize uh, the warrants that, uh, that I had that had been submitted. And um, because of logistics, they, uh, we worked out of an off-site. It was a rather small office. So paperwork was not stored there. It was routinely forwarded back to the main office where they had the facilities for, for file storage. So many of our um, investigations, um, once the UFAP was obtained, were just forwarded right back to the main office. Only a, maybe a dozen or two remained in the office. I went back and looked at some of the warrants that I had previously submitted, and uh, I recognized that they had been altered. Um, But more troubling was the fact that information that was false had been added to those warrants, and they attributed that information either to me, um, and then I found out also it was being done with some of the inspectors that were assigned to me. Um, I was alarmed by that, obviously, and um, brought it to the attention of the chief state's attorney. Wow. So so you were preparing um, warrants and someone else then to make sure that those would get approved yeah. was adding information to sort of make it too good to fail. Embellishing and attributing the fake information to other police officers. Oh, geez. And so you brought that to the attention the of the att- chief state's attorney at the time, who was Jack Bailey. Wow. So what happened then? He initially expressed outrage, um, and then that changed within a matter of weeks. Um, Unbeknownst to me and and the other inspectors, he was jockeying for a position with the Federal Department of Justice under Janet Reno. And knowing that the uh, local New Haven FBI office would, would need to recommend him and also do his background investigation, he decided to switch sides. Yeah, and, he would be a lot less outraged. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and became quickly very neutral to the whole issue, even though we had documentary evidence. And he knew the three of us personally and knew that we were never going to make an allegation like that without, without documentation. Um, but he took a public position that it was a personality dispute, that it was a miscommunication. And um, his, his solution was, um, removing us from the task force, disbanding us, and assigning us to various courthouses across the state, while at the same time demoting me from a supervisor's position back to an inspector. Wow. I sort of suspect you didn't take this lying down. Initially, I did um, because I didn't really feel I had much recourse. But after some time went by and I realized that my career path had just been derailed right. for telling the truth, um, I decided to... Um, to speak with an attorney, and uh, and that was Karen Lee Torrey. And um, her recommendation was there was uh, sufficient cause 
to file a federal civil rights action for violation of uh, my First Amendment right because I had been gagged from speaking about what had taken place to, to anyone. One of the 1983 actions. Yes. Yeah, great. So you did it. I did. And from what I understand, it was a contentious trial. It was. But in the end, it included testimony from Dr. Henry Lee, who was very well known. He's the founder of the University of New Haven's Henry C. Lee Institute of Forensic Science. And it included someone else that people know very well. Um, Go ahead. Legendary New York Police Department whistleblower Frank Serpico. Yes. And you won. You yes. won your lawsuit. Yeah. The jury sided with me and the judge uh, reaffirmed it with her decision about the constitutional a- aspects of it. And so that's how you uh, ended up coming out with your book, The Thin Blue Lie, about what all had actually happened and how all this came to occur, correct? That's correct. Yes. Talk about what you learned as a whistleblower a little bit. Obviously, there were things that, that went on that that shouldn't have gone on, but maybe through this experience, and you know, there had to have been things that surprised you. If you think back to this experience, which obviously was a defining experience in your life, what is something that happened that really surprised you throughout this whole experience? Well, you soon discover who your real friends are. Yeah. That, that's, that's number one. Number two, the disappointment of um, telling the truth, trying to uphold the principles um, of the oath that you take when you are sworn in as a police officer, um, the fact that you are trying to protect not only your own reputation but the, uh, but the integrity of the uh, organization that you work for and realize that um, they will compromise that standard for political gain. And that's exactly what happened. Um, John Bailey certainly knew that we were telling the truth. He, he knew all of us personally, and I, we all had documentary evidence that showed the original draft warrant. And now and John Bailey was whom? So John Bailey was the chief state's attorney okay, at the time. Okay, and this he is, was the one who w- wanted the job in the Justice Department. Yes, he yeah. was trying to get a position with the federal um, Department of Justice under Janet Reno at did the time. Did he get it? No, he did not get it. Well, there's some justice then, I suppose. He was also... Uh, um, a solid ally of, of Governor Rowland at the time. And as we all know now that Governor Rowland was a crooked politician, and he, I think he felt very good having um, a, a friend of his, John Bailey, um, as his chief state's attorney, comfortable in the fact that uh, that office would never look to investigate him for any misconduct or um, unethical behavior. And what was it like um, meeting Frank Serpico? Because obviously he has attained legendary status. I remember um, quite clearly when I was uh, attending uh, University of New Haven, um, the movie came out. And, uh, of course, I saw the movie and then I bought the, uh, the, the book. And I kept that book um, until the day I, I eventually met him in person. I, we, I had to dig it out and I was so glad that I was able to, to, to find it. And he was surprised that I had a first printing of the book. Um, but yeah, I got to spend some, some time with him. I uh, picked him up in upstate New York, um, drove him back to Connecticut. So we got to talk, uh, on that car ride, uh, had dinner at night. Um, he came in the next day prepared to testify, did not have to. And because the case had then been settled and then we had a very enjoyable ride back to New York. The pressure was off and we could both relax and, and just uh, sort of enjoy each other's company and, uh, yeah, catch up. 
And so talk to me about the reaction of some of the other FBI agents who were not directly involved. Uh, Did you experience blowback from them or were they largely supportive or was it some of both? Both. Both. Yeah. There there, there were some that that knew me and supported me in private. um, A few actually supported me publicly. um, And then there were some that uh, turned their back on me, even though I had uh, worked with them and known them for for years and they were not directly involved. Uh, They were going to pledge their allegiance to the FBI regardless of um, the accusations or the or the evidence. You know, it's difficult to generalize across any organization as large as the FBI is, but it, it does seem as though um, the Bureau has fallen on controversial times. Yes. And so, you know, some people have asked why, if there does seem to be a problem, no matter what side of the political fence mm-hmm. you, you stand on, and as a 501c3 Yankee Institute is officially nonpartisan, but... Um, You know, you do see, for example, these men in Michigan um, who were accused of insurrection or trying to— Plotting to kidnap the governor. Yeah, plotting to kidnap Governor Whitmer. A couple of them were outright acquitted, and two more, I think, are going to be retried. But the ones that were acquitted uh, were acquitted on the grounds that the FBI actually entrapped them. Yes, And, you know, such behavior is unthinkable back in the days when we all grew up with the shows where the FBI was really seen as the gold standard. The FBI has multiple guidelines to reduce the chances of an entrapment defense. And uh, those guidelines had to be broken um, for them to come up with the results that they did after a prosecution. You know, whatever one thinks of former President Trump, I mean, you know, it does seem as though a storyline is emerging that the FBI clearly overlooked some of of those guidelines in in terms of pursuing this Russia narrative that is now being revealed to have been pretty much made up out of whole cloth by the Clinton campaign. And so it just is bewildering. And one wonders, you know, what in the world has gone on? Because as you know, I mean, we grew up in a time where the FBI was considered really the gold standard of investigative integrity. The problem, Carol, I I believe is because Historically, the FBI has been allowed to investigate themselves, and, and no other agency or police department uh, has that same luxury. Right now, first of all, it is not as big as an organization as people believe. Right, so there's approximately fifteen thousand special agents now. That sounds like a lot of people, but when you consider they're covering the entire country plus fifty-six offices across the world, and they're half the size of the New York Police Department. Um, and to, to put That's it in, interesting, I didn't realize they were half the size of the New York Police Department. Half the size, and when you consider that Amazon employs almost a million people just in the United States, then you realize that fifteen thousand people for a federal agency is not really all that big. And, and the reason I bring up that point is because it's a closed community, and it's relatively, on, you know, in scale, small. And they decide that they are going to investigate themselves when there is allegations of wrongdoing or criminal conduct. They can't do it um, objectively. Uh, they're they're you know eager to go in and, and investigate a police department or uh, a prison or a sheriff's agency. 
Um, then when accusations of misconduct come up against them, they are the ultimate uh, arbitrators of, of whether someone did something wrong or not. And just to showcase um, how close a, a group it is when we were finally interviewed by OPR. So OPR uh, it stands for the Office of Professional Responsibility. That is the equivalent of their internal affairs unit. Uh, they flew two um, supervisors up from Washington, D.C. to interview me and my uh, t- uh, two inspectors. And one of them recognized me as soon as he walked in the office. Um, so a little awkward. Uh, sure. But, but How did the, you know him? From, me, how did he know from you? my work in the Alexandria office. Right. Uh, I was on the SWAT team and I was on the uh, uh, criminal reactive squad. And he was a newer agent at the time and he, and he recognized me right away. Um, so the point I'm making is they bring in, you know, what they think are outsiders, but those outsiders actually know a lot of the people um, that they're going to be investigating or they know someone who was a roommate or had worked with them. Um, it, it's like that seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, except it's like about two degrees within yeah. the FBI. Yeah, sort of incestuous. It, it really is. And, and, and you can't be expected to conduct an objective, neutral, impartial investigation when you are familiar with um, a, a few of the people that are involved. And so um, I think that's p- part of the problem, what happened. They did a very limited scope investigation. They, they minimized it. They, they tried to give the benefit of the doubt uh, every time they could. And, you know, for an organization that prides itself on being able to find a needle in a haystack, when they had a look at this, they couldn't find the haystack all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in our final moments, um, we let's go from the incredibly important to sort of the trivial. Um, as someone who was on the SWAT team in Alexandria, clearly, you know, you've busted in on people and everything. How accurate are the TV shows? You know, you know how they go in and I mean, like I make it for people who can't, I'm making the gesture right now, you know? And so how accurate is it when they're like FBI, FBI, and they kick down the door and they're in and like, you know, they're waving the gun around. I mean, is that accurate? Does that happen? It actually is fairly accurate under certain circumstances. So if the person is considered a a threat because of a known history of resistance or because they're known to carry firearms or whatever the, the level of the crime they're wanted for. Um, you know, speed uh, and aggression um, count heavily in your favor yeah. um, when you have to make an entry. And so to that extent, it, it, it probably is somewhat accurate, but I, I think it's, it's obviously overdone. It looks like it's the routine or, or, or common when it's not, but, but at, at different times it is appropriate. But when you have to do it, that's kind of what it looks like? Yes, Wow, that's interesting. When I see that, I always think, you know, those are brave, brave people doing that. And I appreciate the fact you did it. Yeah, they're so, called dynamic entries for a reason because yeah. they have to be done with speed and, and, and aggression. And, um, you know, I never forget when I see that. And, you know, for all the upright people who are there, and there are a lot of them still. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know how to be grateful enough because I never forget every single one of those men and women you know, they have people who love them waiting at home and praying that they're going to be all right. And uh, well, in so, my book, I do I do acknowledge um, one of my SWAT teammates that was that was murdered um, while working. 
um, on a surveillance. And, and uh, he's mentioned in the book. You know, before we go, um, I do also want to give you a minute to mention Shepherd's Mentors because uh, there are so many, you know, good causes, and I know you're heavily involved with them. So just so that um, I know everyone who hears this is going to go buy The Thin Blue Lie by Greg Dillon. But- and Carol, I just want to interject there. Um, while Amazon does carry it, they can buy it directly from my website. Oh, which fantastic. Is, which what is, is your website, Greg? So thinbluelie, L-I-E, book.com, thinbluelibook.com. And um, it's cheaper on my website than Amazon. Definitely do that. And if you make a notation when you order it that you want it signed or you want it dedicated, I'm always happy to do that too. And that would make a great gift, actually. So, um, Greg, so and, and 10% of your proceeds go to Shepherd Mentors, uh, correct? The Shepherd's Organization, yes, yeah, it does. Okay, and so um, and so, just tell us briefly what is Shepherd's Mentors? So it's a it's a nonprofit organization, and what we try to do is um, financially support um, eighth graders that are looking to go to a private high school in Bridgeport or New Haven. So Notre Dame uh, is the school that we use for New Haven County, and Colby Cathedral is the school that we use in the in the Bridgeport area. We provide the financial aid and also a mentor for the four years of their high school experience. That is a wonderful, wonderful cause. And that just, well, blessings to all of that. And Greg, thank you so much for being with us on this edition of YCT Matters. And everyone, don't forget to check out his site, thethinbluelibook.com. And thanks to all of you for being with us. This is Carol Platt-Lebow for Yankee Institute, wrapping up this edition of YCT Matters. Join us for the next one very soon. Thanks so much. I'll show you around this place I call home.